My name is Eusebio, and I'm calling from Houston, Texas. Yes, FIFA is a corrupt organization, and I wish there was a way for all countries and teams around the world to get out of FIFA. Secondly, issuing Qatar the World Cup was also a corrupt process. But the important thing is that football is a wonderful sport, and nothing can kill its magic. This is the Iranian national anthem. When the anthem played out ahead of Iran's first game against England on Monday, the Iranian players, every member of the team, looked on tight-lipped. It was a remarkable act of defiance. For months, Iranians have taken to the streets in demonstrations sparked by the death of a young woman who died in the custody of the country's morality police. The consequences for the players could still be severe. But FIFA expects to draw a global TV audience of close to 5 billion people. So as protests go, there's no bigger public stage than the World Cup. And whether the World Cup amazes or appalls you, there's a lot already to talk about. Later on, we talk to the host of NPR's new bilingual sports podcast, The Last Cup. It follows the career of Lionel Messi. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. We have a lot more coming up. We're talking all things World Cup, and who better to get us underway than NPR's Tom Goldman. Tom joined us from Qatar. We started our conversation by discussing the protests that have taken place on and off the field. You know, you mentioned the um, the Iranian protest, and uh, the players took this stand that you mentioned, and uh, really the only kind of response we heard here was from the Iranian coach, who who basically said to the fans who were booing the players, you know, you shouldn't come here, you should go home, you shouldn't come here and and not show your support. He later tempered that in his in his comments, but uh, in in his press conference comments, but he said, you know, these kind of things they're not welcome because our boys are. Just just simple football boys. And I think that's a feeling you're getting um, from a lot of players who are being asked to speak out on different issues, but they all come back to, we're here to play football. It wasn't our decision to cite this uh, th- this World Cup in in Qatar, but on you know so they're walking a they're walking a fine line. As far as what you're hearing from mm-hmm. officials, um, you're you're getting announcements from FIFA, soccer's international governing body. You're getting announcements that most people have heard from now about the ban on beer in stadiums. You're you're hearing about the the decision to not allow rainbow colored armbands worn by captains. Uh, uh, FIFA actually came out with its own set of armbands, which were really watered-down kind of bland messages about, you know, football unites the world and feed the hungry and all these things that we believe in. Nothing specific, um, certainly, about um, LGBTQ rights, uh, which has been a big issue in the lead-up in the, in the lead to, uh, to, to this World Cup. I want to understand why a tiny country like Qatar went to such enormous efforts to host the World Cup. What's in it for them? 
A lot is in it for them. Um, they, you know, we've heard this with Saudi Arabia too, using sports and entertainment as a way to kind of change their image and emerge in the world. And uh, Qatar is doing that. There is even less known about Qatar of, of you know, certainly among of the Gulf nations. So this World Cup is an opportunity to say, hello world. Um, and so far not going that well because what the world is seeing is, um, is, is a government and we are assuming that the government is behind, um, these proclamations by FIFA that we're not going to let you drink beer, even though that was talked about in the lead up. We're not going to let rainbow armbands appear anywhere, not on the field. We, we've actually heard a couple of stories of journalists who showed up for games, for matches. One of them, a well-known um, soccer writer, Grant Wall from the U.S., wore um, a T-shirt with a rainbow color on it and a message about inclusivity, and he was detained at security. It's really important to me. It's not required by any stretch of the imagination. I've got family members who are gay. I've got friends who are gay. I've got journalist friends who are gay who are here in Qatar. But you don't need that to be supportive, to be an ally. Um, I was thinking about Colorado Springs. I was thinking about all sorts of stuff. And if I have to be detained for 30 minutes, it's kind of annoying but it's not an issue for me. A British journalist uh, was stopped for carrying a flag from his home state in Brazil, which happened to include a rainbow on it. It wasn't, it wasn't a message about inclusivity, and he was detained too. So it appears obvious that security has been told no rainbows. Mm. And this is against the backdrop of uh, both FIFA and Qatar officials saying in the run-up to the World Cup, everyone is welcome. Um, and the message was that was going to include LGBTQ fans. Uh, but once these games started, <laughs> it's like uh, it's like a big uh, gate slammed down. And um, these are the rules. FIFA's president is Gianni Infantino, and he's been outspoken about some of the criticism leveled at him and the tournament organizers. Infantino told journalists he knew what it felt like to be discriminated against. He said he was bullied as a child for having red hair and freckles. And then he said, quote, today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel like a migrant worker, end quote. Tom, what point was he trying to make and, and did it land? We also should mention, Jen, that a female reporter at that press conference said, you didn't mention that today I am a woman. And so he went back and said, today I'm a woman. So everyone was included in that. I think there was a lot of head scratching uh, that followed that. Um, what, what's being described as uh, at times a, 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 an angry monologue by him that went on for about an hour. Uh, this was supposed to be just, um, you know, remarks at the beginning of a press conference, but it went on, and and it's and it appeared to be like 12 years of built-up uh, frustration over the criticism of this very controversial World Cup. It was it was awarded to Qatar. In, uh, in, in 2010. But Infantino was, I, I think, adopting the old policy, the best defense is a good offense. Um, and he came out swinging in this press conference. 
And what he said, I think, was widely panned by fans who heard it, by by the media, and and by rights groups. Uh, Amnesty International came out and said, "Listen, he's trying to." I should also I should preface that by saying that. Aside from what he said there, he also went after European critics in particular and saying it was absolutely hypocritical because European policies over thousands of years have have subjugated people. And so Amnesty International came out and said, you know, and, and pretty much excoriated him for brushing aside valid human rights concerns in Qatar, the treatment of migrant workers, uh, the potentially poor treatment of LGBTQ fans, and certainly, you know, LGBTQ people within the country. Homosexuality is illegal. So he swung at that press conference, and I think the consensus was that he missed. I'm curious to know what this World Cup, what questions it brings up about FIFA, how it operates, because it's not the first time questions have been raised about FIFA and, and corruption and how tournaments are awarded. But do you feel like those conversations are progressing at all? I don't. I feel like uh, there's a lot of anger. I mean, listen, we were talking about bribery back in 2002 with the Salt Lake City Olympics. That was with the International Olympic Committee. But with these big organizations that cite these mega spectacles in autocratic countries, this seems to go on and on and on. And it seems to be a preference of organizations like FIFA or the International Olympic Committee now Um, I believe it was The Economist that had a a story that said 37% of of these mega events have been cited in recent years in uh, might be the last 10 or so years in in autocratic countries. And I had someone tell me the reason they want them in autocratic countries and they actually want them there is that in a democracy, you're finding the democratic institutions which respond and have to be responsible to their people are finding that their people don't want these hugely bloated, expensive events. So they're dropping out. And the countries that are left to use them are countries like Qatar, like Russia, like China. Um, who use them, the, the term that's been used a lot is sports washing, to try and scrub their reputations. Mostly that doesn't work, but they get through it and they get a lot of attention. And uh, once these events start, they, they do crack down like we're, we're starting to see in Qatar. With us now is Kareem Zidane. He covers the intersection of sports and politics at The Guardian. He joins us from Vancouver. Kareem, welcome to the program. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me on. What sense do you have that public opinion about these large international sporting events is is changing? Well, honestly, Jen, it all depends on uh, who you're asking and what region of the world they reside in. Because if you're speaking about Western audiences, well, certainly they've become more aware of the issues of sports washing and uh, authoritarians being involved in major sports events. Uh, Definitely Qatar has brought a lot of attention to that. The Olympic Games in China earlier this year brought a lot of attention to that. In many years, this was a sort of a banner year for sports washing. But at the same time, this is not an opinion shared by everybody. If you uh, listen to Arabic media, for instance, a variety of countries across North Africa and the Middle East, uh, this is not the same sentiment right now. They're quite delighted that there's finally a World Cup taking place in an Arab country. They'd rather sports be uh, separate from politics in this sense, and they'd like to simply celebrate uh, the sports. They view it as a quite an uh, 
uh, an unfair treatment, a hypocritical perspective from the West. So to be honest, it's, it varies significantly depending on who you're asking and where. Well, this isn't the first huge sports organization to find itself embroiled in scandal, whether it's FIFA, uh, the International Olympics Committee, the NFL, the NBA. To what extent are these organizations paying more attention or trying to change the values they say they uphold? Oh, again, uh, it, it's, it seems that a, a lot of these uh, major sports organizations like to present the facade of inclusive, uh, inclusive sports entities, progressive sports entities. But in truth, they are only after the pursuit of profit and whatever is going to lead to that profit. In this case, the money that they're mainly making is from these autocratic regimes hosting uh, variety of sports, whether it be you know the the Olympic Games, whether it be the FIFA World Cup, whether it be you know boxing uh, events in Saudi Arabia, the list really goes on. And Formula One races, etc. It just so happens that autocrats are paying the bill now, and they're floating it. So. Uh, they tend to make a lot of the rules, and we're seeing that with FIFA right now. Despite its uh, claims of inclusivity and that everybody is welcome, we're seeing very clearly that, no, that's simply not true. Kareem, how much power do the fans have, given that the fact that soccer has a global audience in the billions? It's wildly popular. Where is that balance between big money and fan power? Well, I think I believe that fans certainly have more power than a lot seem to think that they do. The problem is uniting all fans behind a single cause, like a boycott, is a next to impossible idea, truly. So, in order to achieve that sort of effect of of their power, you need some sort of uh, unity amongst them, which is never going to be the case. The other true problem when it comes to fandom is that many are simply apathetic when it comes to issues of human rights and uh, politics within sports. To them, sports is a form of escapism, especially when you talk about, you know, soccer, football, the beautiful game. That truly is a sport that has been seen as a national pastime in many countries and nostalgia from childhoods and and simply a sport that people don't want to be uh, sullied, let's say, by by politics. So they tend to ignore these issues or are simply apathetic to them entirely. So we, it's not simply that all fans are going to react. Some fans simply don't care. And that's really a part of the problem. It's what I have faced most significantly as a reporter, unfortunately, is trying to make fans care about these issues. I'm, I want to go to something you shared on Twitter, Kareem. You called the opening match between Qatar and Ecuador, quote, more of a geopolitical summit than a soccer game. Explain that. Well, it just so happened that it really was a, a meeting of Arab leaders. You'd think it was sort of the Arab uh, summit that happens every year. There was, you know, the president of Egypt, the, the, the monarchs in various Gulf states, including Bahrain, uh, from Jordan as well. It all really just seemed like these politicians were getting together for a good old time rather than this being about the football. And it couldn't have been, maybe it's because I am actually from the region, I'm Egyptian myself, but uh, it, it was very, very clear to me that this was a lot more than just a a football match. And I understand that uh, it's, it's, it's quite normal for politicians to attend opening games and generally to attend uh, football matches at the World Cup, but not by this quantity. It really felt like there was a lot of negotiating, a lot of deals that were taking place at the time. And it's, it's even more fascinating when you consider the fact that a lot of these countries weren't very friendly with Qatar just a few years ago. I mean, Qatar was sort of isolated in the region up until you know, maybe two, three years ago. And it's amazing to see that 
with the World Cup taking place now, all these other Arab countries that had once boycotted and isolated Qatar have come together sort of as this group of unity. And in many ways, that can be very concerning when you consider the fact that most of these leaders are dictators and authoritarians. Well, the U.S. men's team faces England next, and then they play Iran. And, and we know political relations between Washington and Tehran are bad right now, in large part because Russia is using Iranian-made weapons against Ukrainians. Looking ahead, are there any other matchups that you expect might have extra political significance? You know, I haven't thought particularly of the actual uh, one-on-one head-to-head games, but I am looking at individual teams, and I, for the most part, am keeping an eye on uh, general activity overall. I'm looking for sort of any form of media activism or protest. I'm looking for fan activism and protest. I'm looking for individual athletes who speak up. And, of course, the subtle actions that a lot of these teams are taking. I think we can't ignore the fact that Iran... And its men's national team took a incredibly brave step in their opening game against England by actually not singing the national anthem. There's already been calls for them back home in Iran to be punished for this. And truth be told, they will likely face retribution because this was a significant move against the regime, clearly a show of solidarity with the protesters. And quite frankly, in my opinion, it's so far the bravest example of a protest of the World Cup, which is really fascinating when you consider the fact that many had called for the Iran's national team to be boycotted from the World Cup beforehand. I hope people sort of reconsider the roles of national teams, especially the fact that they might not necessarily be supportive of the country. As a matter of fact, this works against sports-washing interests of the Iranian regime. They might have been hoping that Iran might perform well and make the regime look good. But instead, what's actually happened is it's brought attention to the protesters once more. Well, I want to talk briefly about the games themselves. There was a moment when the U.S. men's national team scored the goal that put them up by one against Wales. That game ended in a tie. But there have already been some big upsets. And I know it's early in the competition, but what games have stood out so far for you? In terms of upsets, well, I mean, how can we not talk about uh, Saudi Arabia's miraculous upset victory against uh, Argentina? What a remarkable uh, win for, for the country. And it's, I think it's important here, to a certain extent, for us to distinguish between the woes of the Saudi government and its people. At the end of the day, when I do my reporting about authoritarian regimes, I'm not speaking on behalf of the people. and I'm certainly not speaking or criticizing the people themselves. In many cases, people simply have no choice. I myself have lived in authoritarianism, and I can completely understand when you feel powerless and helpless. With that being said, I feel quite happy that Saudi Arabia, which is uh, a country that probably has the worst record ever in the World Cup and has gone through humiliating defeats over the years manages to earn this historic victory that well, people are going to keep talking about in that country for a long, long time to come and is going to spark a whole new generation of footballers in Saudi Arabia. So I think that's something to consider, especially since we're hosting a World Cup in an Arab country. It is a pleasant surprise to see a little bit of Arab success at these events at the same time. So that's probably the one that has stuck out to me the most so far, Jen. Well, up next, we turn to a new sports podcast from NPR focused on the career of soccer star Lionel Messi. Back with more in a moment. Now let's get back to the World Cup, and we're thrilled to add a new voice to the conversation. Jasmine Garst is the host of NPR's new bilingual sports podcast, The Last Cup. It follows the career of soccer great Lionel Messi. Jasmine, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So a lot of eyes on Messi. He said this is his last World Cup, and that's where the title of your podcast comes from. How much is riding on this last push for him to win a world championship? 
Well, I think for him it's a lot, you know. I mean, I think Messi, he's, he's hailed as one of the best players in the world, one of the best players in soccer history. And certainly with his, his team, with Barca, well, his former team uh, in, in Europe, he's, he's broken like every record. I mean, he really is a, a legend of soccer. What's really fascinating is that with his home country, with Argentina, for most of his career, the, his performance has been less than stellar. People have been disappointed with him, and he's never been able to win a World Cup. And so, you know, he just announced that he is retiring uh, from World Cups. Like, this is his last World Cup. And so what's riding is this is his last chance. Mm. Well, yeah. for, for folks who aren't soccer aficionados i just want to be clear that barca is is barcelona's football club and the only reason i know that is because my husband is a barca uh, a barca person i'm sure i didn't say that right but jasmine how how is this world cup how has it started off for messi how is it going so far Oh, my. Um, well, it didn't start off very well. Uh, yesterday, we saw him leading Argentina um, against Saudi Arabia. And as we know, it was a historic upset. It was a 2-1. I, I don't think anyone w- would have predicted that. Um, it, was a, it was off to a very, very bad start, for sure. So, you know, I mean, Messi's life with Argentina, his career with Argentina, has has always been kind of marked by just uh, it's been very like tragic like almost like a literary tragedy you know with Argentina um, and so it's not surprising that he started off on the wrong foot but the team is saying you know we can we can pull together we're, we got this let's turn the page so we'll, we'll have to see on Saturday when they they face off against Mexico. Well Kareem you wrote an article earlier this year that heavily criticized Lionel Messi's trip to Saudi Arabia. The trip was sponsored by the country's tourism agency and in the article you said quote its effects will be topic, toxic. What was the significance of him taking that trip? Well, the significance was that Messi suddenly became the poster boy of sports washing. Not only is he now aligned with PSG Paris Saint-Germain, which is a Qatari-owned football club in France, but he was willing to take millions upon millions of dollars in Saudi money to go be pictured on the Red Sea. And that's quite disappointing, to be honest, because Lionel Messi doesn't need the money. So it's not as if we're talking about desperate athletes that are looking for some sort of payday here. Messi has already made his millions, so it's quite disappointing to see that he's, been, he's willing to be a willing participant in Saudi Arabia's propaganda. And the fact that they're able to secure one of the best players in the world, probably and arguably at this point, the player is going to be known as the greatest of all time, at least for the time being. For, the, for, them, for them to be able to secure him as sort of a PR representative and a tourism ambassador is a massive boon for Saudi Arabia. A massive boon for Mohammed bin Salman and extraordinarily disappointing for the sport. Well, a Forbes analysis uh, listed Messi as the highest paid athlete in the world. He, he brings in about $130 million in pre-tax gross earnings. That was last year. You know, Jasmine, as you were building this podcast and exploring Messi, what did you learn about Messi on the field and then Messi off the field. Who are those people? Are they the same? Well, Messi is an extraordinary player. Um, I think that, you know, to to the other guest's point, I mean, I think I find myself and a lot of soccer fi- fans find themselves in this, this very awkward, uncomfortable position of, of very much loving the game and, you know, just just 
it, it's very unfortunate the way this is this is playing out and and what has happened. As for um, Messi as a person, you know what what I came to understand uh, about Messi through the research is that he. Um, it, like, like, like there's a very human story about Messi. You know, he he was a child prodigy in Argentina, in in what would be like the Midwest of Argentina. I'm from Argentina, by the way, um, and he he had this medical problem. You know, he had a hormonal deficiency, and the country was really spiraling into a, a very desperate economic crisis, which would end with a an economic and political collapse. And the family decided to emigrate. They emigrated to Spain. And this is something that just completely broke his heart as a child. And he always yearned to go back and to play with Argentina. Um, and the the fact that he just couldn't perform well with Argentina, that he just continually would do wonderful things with Europe and just flop with Argentina. It was always an immense heartbreak for him. It, it really, speaking to people close to him, it really broke him. It really destroyed him. Um, and I think there's there's a story within Messi's story, like the personal story. Um, it really speaks about having to leave home and not knowing how to get back or if you can get back. Well, I want to make sure we play some audio from the podcast. This is a moment from episode one. As you said, Messi left Argentina as a team. He, he really wanted to return to live out his dream of playing for the national team. And here's a moment that highlights his first goal for the team. This kid is going to play a few minutes, says the announcer. He's a bit of a mystery. He's 17, he's from Rosario, but he went to Spain to play really young. What's notable about this game is that the team is all but ignoring Messi. Like at some point, it's a blowout, 6-0. And even the announcer said, Hey, Pass it to the new guy. He's all by himself. But then someone does pass it to him. And he turns it on, dribbling at the speed of light. The seventh goal was his. He dribbles past like six Paraguayan players. It's like the ball's attached to him. Jasmine, how has his inability to win a World Cup for Argentina, of course, as part of a team, how has that complicated his popularity at home? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I was fascinated by the Messi story because as an Argentine living abroad, I, I would always hear people, you know, Europeans and uh, uh, people from the United States and from all over the world talk about like Messi. He's so great. He's one of the greatest or he's the best in the world. And then I would go back home to, to Argentina and people were like, yeah, we don't like that guy. I, I'm no, not for us, and and this like really interested me because it's something that I kept hearing as a reporter. Um, you know, for NPR, I've covered a lot of immigration, and I kept hearing this story or some echo of this story in different immigrant communities. You know, this very fraught 
complicated, nuanced relationship with back home. You know, like that, that, that you made it somewhere, but then when you go back home, it's a difficult relationship. And so for the longest time, I would say Messi was not just not appreciated back home. He wasn't liked back home. He was seen as someone who would insist on coming back and consistently fail us. Um, that started to shift in 2021, but it was a very, very long journey. Um, and, and I was just really fascinated by, by that story. We're talking to Jasmine Garst. She's the host of NPR's new bilingual sports podcast, The Last Cup. Also with us, Kareem Zidane. He's an investigative journalist covering sports and politics for The Guardian. Kareem, do you think there's something emblematic about Messi's experience playing football, playing for a country that's not his home country, and some of the complications that brings up not just for him, but for other players in the sport? I think... uh the issues of nationalism and uh, living in your country versus living abroad versus whether you're bringing pride and prestige to your country or not, I think this is an issue that uh, uh, many of us can relate to, especially living abroad. I do not live in my home country. and It's the kind of thing that I hear uh, regularly back home, despite speaking the language, despite looking like one of them. The fact that you live abroad now changes things. And I can imagine that is... Uh, at, a, at a much higher magnitude when it comes to significant football players like like Messi. So that ties us back into pretty much how significant achieving the World Cup would be for him right now. I mean, it would all doubters would have to like, change their minds here and, and admit that Messi is pretty much a heroic national figure at that point. Whether he lived in Argentina or didn't live in Argentina, a victory here changes everything. It wipes away that past and gives them a whole new legacy to, to, to sit on at that point. So it's very significant when we really think about it. Well, Jasmine, I want to turn back to Messi. There's a hot debate about whether he's the greatest player of all times. He can escape comparisons to another Argentinian soccer legend, Diego Maradona. But where does Messi land in your rankings? Oh, I mean, I think Messi is a brilliant uh, soccer player, and I think he's one of the best in the world. I think this kind of comparison is is it's just it doesn't lead to much uh, between whether it's Messi or, or Maradona or Pelé or Ronaldinho, because I think with soccer, so much is context, and I think that's something uh, Karim has been talking about so beautifully. I mean, so much of soccer and how the person plays and how, what they achieve is context. You know, uh, Diego Maradona was a player who came on the international stage um, during a time where Argentina had just um, ended a, a, a war with England. We had just uh, ended a very brutal dictatorship. Um, and, you know, he, he played in the, in the World Cup in 86 and and won that World Cup. And you cannot deny what that meant geopolitically, um, that that he he beat England in this in this very iconic and controversial game. And he also, for Argentines, he meant something different than Messi. I mean, Maradona was a guy who came from, he was a kid who came from abject poverty. You know, he was a a, a kid who was just really on the margins of Argentine society. He was a brown kid in Argentina. I mean, it, he meant so much to, to like the psyche of, of your average Argentine and Messi means something different, and they're both valid. I'm curious, Jasmine, how this project has made you think differently about your own story. 
I mean, I think it's definitely made me think a lot about the complexity of identity for those of us who have left. Um, part of the podcast explores um, just having to have left around the same time as Leo Messi. I left a few months after for similar reasons, because the country had collapsed uh, economically and, and politically. And so we really had to leave uh, with my family. And it's something that I've been digesting for many years, you know, what is my identity if I left home and, and I live somewhere else for such a long time. And I think what's really been wonderful about this podcast is the amount of listener feedback that we've gotten. I mean, I've gotten letters from people from all over the world. I mean, people from Afghanistan to Chile, Bangladesh, who, who have some sort of similar conundrum, which is I had to leave a long time ago and now I'm here. What does that make me? And what's even more fascinating to me is I've gotten letters like that from people who have come from like a small town in California, mm. you know, and and have the same issue. Like I'm heading back for Thanksgiving. I've been away for a really long time and I've developed maybe a different identity. And now I have to go back and, and, and to this place that is what I used to be and where I used to be and how to navigate that. Yeah. Well, Corrine, we have just a few seconds left here, but I'd be really interested in hearing what you'll be watching for in Qatar as the World Cup unfolds over the next few weeks. Well, I'll certainly be watching, again, for any sort of political activity. But with regards to football, I'm really, uh, obviously, a little bit of bias being being Arabic. I am going to watch for all the Arab teams, see how they're going to perform. I'm going to be watching for Morocco, for Tunisia, of course, for Saudi Arabia, for all these other countries. But I'm still very much interested in watching the the whole event from a unbiased perspective. Egypt is not in this year's World Cup, uh, therefore I don't really have to support anyone in particular outside of maybe Canada. It'll be interesting to see Canada perform at the World Cup for the first time in my lifetime. That's Kareem Zidane. He covers sports and politics for The Guardian. Also with us, Jasmine Garst. She's the host of NPR's new sports podcast, The Last Cup. It's available in English and Spanish, and you'll find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to you both. Today's producers were Lauren Hamilton and Rupert Allman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.